Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Galit Speaks podcast. I have a really awesome guest who I think you guys are going to love. Uh, Stephanie Tolk is here. Uh, She has lived, worked, backpacked, honeymooned, and volunteered in nearly 50 countries on five continents. However, she values the quality of her experiences abroad over the number of countries she visited. Stephanie has pounded millet into flour in Mali, faced a cobra in Sri Lanka, sailed on the Nile River, road tripped in Turkey, and lived with Hmong people in Vietnam. Vietnam. She spent almost five years of her life abroad and speaks Bambara along with a smattering of Dutch, Spanish, and French. Currently world schooling, Stephanie and her husband have brought their daughters to 15 countries and counting. Having experienced firsthand the the transformative power of cultural immersion, she strives to provide that for her daughters and other world schoolers. Through her business, Deliberate Detour, Stephanie supports traveling families in making their dreams come true through coaching, working groups, and online courses. Stephanie infuses social and environmentally sustainable travel tenants into all of her work with learners and clients, encouraging world schoolers to immerse into cultures ethically for optimal impact for locals and travelers alike. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited about this. Thanks, Galit. Thanks for having me. I've never um, heard my bio read. It's a little bit (laughs) long, like I've read it on a screen, but to hear it uh, makes me think I might need to pare it down a bit. Anyway, yeah, nice to be I, with you today. I love it. I am super excited for this because anyone who knows me knows I am all about travel and all about immersing myself in with local culture rather than just going and in Hebrew we call it lesamen vi, which is basically to put a check mark on somewhere. Mm. Like, oh, I've been here. Done. Done. It's like the bucket list idea. Yeah. And I am way more about getting the full on experience and something about your bio and just all about what you're doing really, really spoke to me. How did you how did you decide that this was the route you wanted to take? Oh, gosh. Um, You know, it all goes back to childhood. Like so much of who we are as adults goes back to childhood. And um, I grew up in Connecticut about an hour from Manhattan and was fortunate enough to be able to go into New York City quite a bit as a child, but grew up in a pretty white, homogenous, upper middle class, small New England town. And for me, there were a lot of dichotomies in my childhood that led me to this lifestyle. So one of them was going to New York, spending the day walking around, you know, we'd go to museums, sometimes we'd see like a play, my mom would just wanna go shopping, but I would notice all the people from all over the world. I'd hear different languages. We'd, you know, we'd try Indian food. We'd see people dressed in all these, these outfits and textiles and things I'd never seen. And I just was like floored and like interested and intrigued. And then I go back to my little white town. Um, and I always, I mean, you know, as a child, I thought, well, I need to live in New York City. That's the answer to this. And then I did for a summer and I was like, actually, I don't need to live in New York City. Not a big city person, but it sort of sparked an interest in other cultures, other ways of life. Um, My mom and stepfather actually took my sister and I and then my stepfather's two kids when they were just getting married. And I was like 10, 11, 12 to a couple of places in Latin America. And I had a similar sort of like eye-opening experience where they were kind of plushy travelers. We'd go to resorts, we'd stay behind the gate. But then, you know, there was a moment in the Dominican Republic where 
they wanted, my mom and stepfather wanted to try um, a local restaurant. They loved food. And so they were like, let's go out into the local restaurant, out into the, the town. So the dichotomy of this sort of plush resort um, paired next to the local town where really like the workers, the people serving us and cleaning the hotel came from, um, I think I was 11 or 12. I just was like, what is going on here? So there were sort of like layers peeled back for me over time around um, the realities of wealth disparity, the global north and and other parts of the world, um, inequity, and just like the beautiful richness, the cultural richness of the planet that I wasn't getting. Um, I was just getting, getting snippets of, but I was really curious about. Yeah, I I have had those moments as well because I am not. So I, in general, do not love resort travel. But every once in a while, of course, you do it. And I remember having that same experience in the Dominican Republic where mm. nobody leaves the designated resort area. It's gated off. And I was just like, why? And I befriended some people at the resort, some of the staff. And... And they were like, yeah, there's this restaurant out there that you could go to. There's this, there's that. I just walked outside the gates and everybody was like, you need a taxi? Like you, before I got out of the gates, they're like, you should really get a taxi. You shouldn't be out here alone. I'm like, no, 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 I got the bus. They told me how to do this, I can do this. And immediately went into town and ended up making really good friends. Um, and still speak people that I speak to now. And that has kind of been the reason that I was able to do that is because when I was uh, 19, I wanted to travel and decided I was gonna go backpacking in South America. And I thought at that moment that I knew Spanish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, Reality sets in. Yeah, also because the first country I went to was Argentina, which they do not speak Spanish. They speak Mexicano. Yeah. Um, and I realized very quickly that I needed to snap into it. Um, you know, my family took bets on how long I'd last. The longest was two weeks. And I came back six months later from Peru. So nice. that gave me like the confidence to be like, I can go anywhere and survive. Mm -hmm. And I can do it in the ways that the locals do it. And I don't have to stick to this one resort area or the rich neighborhoods because yeah like that's not getting a sense of what the actual culture is yeah and i think your point about you know people challenging whether or not you could or should leave those gates is real and it's like you know, I think when we were in Dominican Republic, I, I kind of have this memory of like my mom being like, we want to go to a local restaurant and the people being like, no, no, no. You know, we've got this buffet and that buffet and you'd be more comfortable, you know, comfortable here, there, there. And they kind of had to like fight for it. And it's um, I think there's this assumption that like, you know, and, and then like travelers from North America or Europe sort of like absorb this idea that we can't that the world is scary you know like why why can't we go out well it's dangerous it's scary so we might go to a place like dominican republic and come back and still be afraid of it which is just kind of nuts yeah well i think the major issue is that we are taught from a very early age to not listen to our gut and not listen to our intuition because i think in all of my travels that has been kind of my guiding light. If it feels shady, if it doesn't feel good to me, I immediately get out of there. That's, mm -hmm. you know, what has kept me safe, I feel like. And we're so good in the States of talking ourselves out of listening to our gut that we get into these situations and do end up in shady situations because we've talked ourselves into saying, Oh, it'd be rude if I just get up and leave now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. definitely. Well, I mean, I've got I've got two daughters. One will be twelve this weekend, and the other one's thirteen. And um, those are conversations we have a lot around. How do you know 
how do you know when something feels okay? You know, and how do you know when to use your voice under what circumstances? So just as a mother of like teen, you know, girls kind of teetering on the edge of teenagerhood, those are just like really like relevant conversations for me right now. Yeah. So what do you tell them? Well, I mean, one of my daughters, you know, it's so interesting, like, we've been traveling for a year and a half now. And one of the benefits of this plucking them out of school and traveling the world is that I feel like I know them so much better. I mean, it's just been so much rich, interesting time, immersive time together. Um, and so one of my daughters is kind of like a, she's like a mediator, sort of like a pleaser type. So she mm -hmm. wants people to like her, which means you don't always say the hard things. So with her, I work on, um, you know, knowing when, like, there's like, knowing when to use your voice, um, and and when and when not to, because I I also think it's not always vital that you say everything on your mind. Um, but when you're 13, you know, you don't always have like the subtleties, the cognitive subtleties to to like see those boundaries. So we just kind of talk about them as they happen episodically. And then my daughter who's 11 turning 12 just like says everything on her mind and doesn't care. <laughs> she like offends people and pushes people away. And so she's like in the other camp. Um, and so for her, we talk about like noticing people's cues and like stepping back and not reacting right away. Like, and I say to her, notice your first reaction and also notice your second reaction. And maybe your first reaction is the one to go with. And maybe there are times when it's your second reaction, um, because often our first one is like we're defensive or we're pissed off or whatever we are. But if we like take a moment and we see the context, maybe our second reaction is the one to go with. So, yeah, traveling while parenting adds a whole other layer of the experience around the world. And, and it really it really lends itself to a lot of really interesting conversations. Yeah, so I'm so curious. Um what is world schooling? Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Good question. So, I mean, for, for decades, people have taken their families out of their community to travel the world and to learn through travel. Um, the term world schooling is fairly new and the community of world schoolers is really burgeoning right now. Um, but essentially my definition is that we, we, we again take our kids out of out of their community and we use the world as a classroom. So I see world schooling as a lifestyle because it's not just an educational approach. It's not, you can't just put it alongside Montessori or Waldorf and say, this is like a pedagogy because to world school, you're really changing so many elements of your entire lifestyle. So some people sell their houses, sell their cars, sell all their things and just literally take like a couple bags and just travel. There's actually a family. I'm in Guatemala right now. There's a family down the street that's been traveling full time for five years. They've got three kids. Just don't they don't own a house. They don't they barely own anything. Um, other people just like for a month, you know, like their kids go to school. But for like a month in the summer, they're trying this new lifestyle um, to maybe test it out for something longer term. Most people that I meet on the road are traveling for many months, like three months, six months, a year, a couple years. Maybe they go home in the summer, we connect with family, or they go home for the holidays, and then they launch out again into the world. So is there, so I know that a lot of people are going to be scared. What about the education? And can then my kids go to college if that's what they decide to do? Yeah. Is there a curriculum that happens? Is it the same thing as homeschooling? What do you do? That's such a good question. And I think probably what, you know, there's probably a few top fears and anxieties around this and education for sure is in like the top three, if not, for me, it was the number one fear. Like I wasn't worried about taking the buses all around these countries. I was like, I'm pulling my kids out of, they were in public school their whole lives. And I am responsible now. I'm not a teacher. My husband is not a teacher. We've never been. But I have this responsibility now so that, you know, if my daughters are in fifth and sixth grade, that when they go back, they're, they can get into the next level. Like, that's where I was all last year. 
So um, world schoolers will educate all kinds of ways. So some people will buy curriculum um, and, you know, have tons of workbooks. Some people will um, buy some curriculum pieces, like maybe take a math book with them if they want to keep up on math, but, but then maybe let go of all the other sort of core academic um, pieces for the time they're traveling. Other people will just really use the world as the teacher. So, um, for instance, last year we went, we spent a little time in um, Italy and then Turkey was our next stop. And we knew that Italy, we were going to talk a lot about the Renaissance in northern, like the uh, Florence area and all the art. And then we were moving down into Rome and Pompeii and we were going to talk about um, ancient Rome and the Roman Empire. And then that extended into Turkey because there's tons of Roman ruins and like this whole Roman history in Turkey, which I didn't even know that much about. So we ended up spending like two months learning all this ancient history, which was fascinating. And it was just through tours and guides and museums and reading the signs. Like it wasn't, there were no quizzes, there were no workbooks. Um, and then there are unschoolers and probably some of your listeners know about unschooling. And it, unschooling does not mean no school at all. All it means is following the passions of your child and letting your child lead the topics that they're interested in exploring. So you might have a child who spends three months like psyched about dinosaurs, for example, and you're, you know, maybe take them to a museum or you watch a documentary, you get books from the library and they're just like immersed. And like when somebody is passionate about something, they will just like suck in that information. Um, and so, so some world schoolers are unschoolers and they're following their kids' passion around the world. But what I've noticed and what we did is that we kind of did a hybrid. So my husband and I were kind of freaked out about math and language arts. Like mm -hmm. I just thought, I mean, I, I do a lot of writing. I've always done a lot of writing in all the, my careers that I've had. Um, and I've hired people. So I've read a lot of like wonderful cover letters and resumes and terrible cover letters and resumes. And I'm just like, my kids need grammar. They need to know how to write essays. They need to know how to put together a paragraph that says yeah. something that gives the message they want to give. Um, and then math, just practical math is just vital in life. Um, so we decided that we were going to kind of keep up on those. We um, brought math workbooks and my husband worked on um, math with my kids. And for language arts, we bought um, classes online um, through a website called OutSchool, which has just like live classes that kind of anything. You could do drawing, you could do history, science, anything. And then all the science, history, um, geography, uh, geology, all of that happens just out in the world. Um, so that's how we've done it. And um, I think it's worked pretty well. I mean, I'm not testing or like assessing where they are compared with other people, but I'm also, we've pulled them out of this structure where they're always being compared and they're always sort of like notched in next to their peers. So in my mind, like if they're gaining knowledge, that's what matters right now. Yeah. And then do you, there's uh, once you do that, right. And you take them out of the system, do do you know if there's a way to put them back in the system when yeah. you return? And you asked about college too. I forgot about yeah. that part. So that was another piece that was really stressful to me because I thought, okay, if I take them out. So, so just to backtrack a minute, we were only going to travel for one year and mm -hmm. we did that in 2021, 22. And then we went back to our hometown and spent three months reconnecting and then realized that we weren't quite finished. Um, we had pre-COVID planned a longer trip that included Latin America. Post-COVID, we had to cut a few months out. So <clears throat> now we're in Latin America because we miss this whole part of the world. Um, but I still, we still, honestly, my husband and I are in this place of sort of assessing, really thinking critically about the American school system, what it provides, what it doesn't mm -hmm. provide, its strengths and weaknesses. There's, it's so multi-layered. Um, and do we want to put our kids back in public school? Now, what I've learned is that most world schooled kids are actually ahead of their peers in many areas. 
Now, if you, you know, if your sixth grader should have been learning fractions and you didn't do that, like, then they're not going to know that. They're going to go to seventh grade. They're not going to know how to add a fraction. And you could worry about that or you could just realize it just is maybe a few weeks and then they know how to add their fractions. So some of that, they just get caught up. Like kids get caught up. Um, one other piece of that, I have a lot of teacher friends that I've chatted with about this and they'll say, you know, if just to use that example, if we have a little bullet point that says the sixth graders will learn to add fractions, it doesn't mean that by the time they end sixth grade, they all can, right? Like kids are all over. So I, when I see these standards, I just have to remember, it doesn't mean everybody knows how to do every bit of it perfectly. That's just not how learning works. Um, so yes, they can go back into school. Sometimes they're a little behind. Sometimes they're a little ahead, but I've never heard of anybody that has to repeat a year. Okay. I mean, that makes, I'm sure that's going to make a lot of people feel better. Um, there's another piece to this, which a lot of people are thinking, um, that's great for Stephanie, but I don't have the funds. How does she yeah. make that work? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. So the other major question is it's education and affording this lifestyle. And people make it work in all kinds of ways. So, and I, I'm happy to tell you my story and there is definitely privilege behind my story. Um, some people will, you know, like I said, sell their house, sell everything and travel for a year on the proceeds if they can. A lot of people work. And so, you know, COVID did a lot of damage, but a couple of things that it did that helped world schoolers is that it helped put a lot of learning online. So, I mentioned out school, but there's so many um, businesses that sprung up for teaching kids online. I mean, whether it's pre-recorded or live synchronous with a teacher, you can learn almost anything online. You do not have to be in your state or in your country. Um, and then, of course, the digital nomad life, the remote work life. So plenty of people have figured out how to make money online. Um, and sometimes, you know, like I said, world schoolers really upend most of their, what their typical life was at home. And so some people have to quit and create a new career for themselves. Maybe they tutor English or they go into coaching or consulting or writing or, I mean, there's, you know, blogging was really big in travel for a while. I don't think you can make too much money doing that anymore. But um, so we my family was able to save money for year one and neither me nor my husband worked. We rented our house in Portland. I live in Portland, Oregon. So I can rent my house in Portland. We had a little net income after we paid our mortgage and we traveled on that and we traveled on savings. Um, and we did not spend our time in Paris where the the um, hotels are $300. We spent our time in Sri Lanka and Egypt and Vietnam and places like that where, you know, a hotel room, a nice hotel room is $30 a night. So um, that's how we managed year one. Year two, my husband's actually working. He, he had sort of a typical, a little bit of an old school kind of office job, but he was able to finagle that into um, digital work. So um, that's what we're doing this year. Okay. So um, when you initially decided to do this, how long do you think you saved in order to be able to do that for the first year? And did you kind of pre-plan out the places that you were going to go? Um, yeah, my experience was like super different. Um, I, yeah. when I went backpacking, I saved up for... Um, I was 19 at the time. So it took me a while to save up. I saved up for almost a year. And then um, I had zero plans. I bought a one-way ticket to Argentina and was like, I'll come back when the money, when the money runs out. Mm -hmm. um, did you plan out everywhere you were going to go, what you were going to do? Yeah. Well, to answer the first part of the question, we saved up for probably two years not super aggressively, but we definitely were like put, we had, we had a separate checking account, separate bank account. We called the big trip fund and we just kept putting money in there. 
Um, when COVID hit, you know, some people really struggled. People experienced that in all kinds of ways. I ended up, I had quit my job. I'd given my notice, but was still working there. And then when COVID hit, I got laid off. So I actually got unemployment, which I wasn't planning on. And like a lot of people just like didn't do anything. So I was actually, we were actually able to save more even after I was unemployed for this 15 month period where we stayed home and we thought we were going to be traveling. So, you know, things like this happen that you don't plan. Um, We did not plan our, our um, journey too specifically because we left in September of 2021. So we, we're supposed to leave in June of 2020. We had flights, we had Airbnbs, like we were like ready to go. And then, you know, March, 2020, everything went crazy. Um, we had, had to cancel everything. Um, and we did have a pretty clear itinerary that year, but then when we finally left, you know, almost a year and a half later, the only thing my husband and I were researching was what borders could we cross? Do we need a PCR test? How many hours does it have to be? Like it was all COVID research to the point where we thought we were landing in Germany and two weeks before we had to change to um, the Netherlands because of COVID restrictions. So like even up till what essentially the last minute for a year long trip, we didn't even know our first country. Um, We did know that we wanted to start in Europe because my kids hadn't, they'd, they'd, when they were tiny, they'd been to Mexico, but mostly hadn't been out of the U.S. And we just felt like Europe was maybe going to be an easier transition into this travel lifestyle. It turns out they were like, this isn't that different from the U.S. You know, they were they were expecting something explosively different. So um, and then we also knew that we had kind of a date with these other traveling families in Egypt right around Christmas of that year. So we had a few months and then we had this meetup, this gathering of families that had been planned. Um, but no, and then, you know, for a while we thought maybe we'd see other parts of Africa. And then we kind of had it on our radar that we wanted to go to Southeast Asia. So it was, it sort of evolved as we went. Yeah. I have so, a question because you said you had a meetup with other families. Yeah. Um, how did you connect with them? Yeah. So um, this is such a cool resource. Like if anybody listening to this is um, curious about this lifestyle, there are, like I said, um, it's a burgeoning community. Um, The pandemic with remote work, digital nomadism has freed up a lot of people to travel. So more and more families are doing this every day. Um, And there are a series of these things called hubs. They're called world schooling hubs. Um, there are not that many, there's probably like under 12, under a dozen at this point. Um, but they're people who live in certain places around the world that have casually invited families to come stay with them. But then most of them have, have evolved into more structured programs. So there's a woman from the UK, went to Egypt with her kids, single mom, ended up kind of falling in love with this town and falling in love with a man in that town. Um, And now they live in Luxor, Egypt together. And she just wanted to build community with other traveling families. And so she started this world schooling hub and the, the children go, I mean, it's, it's evolved since we were there, but the children might go for, you know, a few days a week for five or six hours. They do crafts. They, they do a lot connected with Egyptian culture and ancient Egypt. Um, They'll do little like field trips and outings and walks around the neighborhood. And then the parents, who ostensibly have probably been traveling very in very close quarters with their kids for months or years, get a little break, <laughs> a little separation. Maybe they're, they need like, you know, some time to work. So they're on their tablets and the kids are playing. So um, the series of hubs have sprung up, but it's something I'm getting into. I'm considering getting into myself is setting these up for people because there's, there's very few in the whole, this whole, hemisphere, this whole Western hemisphere of um, Mexico and and Latin America. So it was a wonderful opportunity for my kids to play with kids from all over the world. Um, There was, I think, maybe one other American family and then nobody else was American. Um, And to have peer time and socialization, you pull your kids from school, you pull them from their 
their group, their tribe. Um, and it gives parents an opportunity not only to either like do work or just have their own time, but then to also gel and chat with other traveling families and get lots of questions answered and information shared. Yeah. So if people are looking for these hubs, how do they find them? Are they on so, Facebook? Is it a website? Yeah. The best place, there's two really instrumental Facebook groups. So one is just called World Schoolers, one word. And the other one is called We Are World Schoolers, like super easy to find. Um, I think combined, they probably have nearly 70,000 people on these groups. And um, they were just both so vital for me and my planning and my questions um, for the last two years. And these, um, these world schooling hubs are usually promoted in those two groups. Okay. All right. That... That makes sense. It, I feel like since uh, Facebook has kind of become, you know, when I when I was traveling, this was 2006. So I had Facebook when it was just for college kids to talk to mm. each other. And like since that has ha evolved and become something bigger, um, I think that Facebook groups have been really instrumental on doing lots of different things things in my life. Like I moved cross country and the way that I have built community is partially through Facebook groups. So it makes sense that this would just be another community that mm -hmm. to be accessed via Facebook. Yeah. And, you know, I find Facebook is kept more up to date than websites. Now I go to a website and I just don't know how old the information is. So, yeah. um, yeah. And then, you know, these families also will very casually meet up. So they might be like, you know, I'm in Antigua, Guatemala for a month. Any, any world schoolers here? Do you want to meet up at this park? Um, so we've had like some really sweet moments there. You just drop in with somebody for two hours and then you might never see them again. And it, you have like a sweet experience. Yeah. And you mentioned before getting a break from your kids, which is something that I'm sure any family that has gone on a family vacation understands that need, but you are on like a permanent, you know, 24 seven yeah. together. What, how do you deal with that? Besides, you know, those moments where you get to like be free. Yeah, totally. I mean, of course, everybody has different boundaries and different parameters and needs around this. Um, my husband runs, he goes running. And so he's just like, see, so yeah, I'm out, you know, 30, 60 minutes. He's like, got his exercise, has an endorphins and just had like a moment to explore the town on his own. Um, he also, we realized last year, um, is not good in one hotel room. Like he just, he's like the, he gets up before everybody in the morning. He just wants to make his coffee. He like, doesn't want to be super quiet. We had plenty of hotel rooms where it was two queen size beds, my kids in one kicking each other and arguing. <laughs> you know, we try to turn off the light around nine, nine thirty, and then my husband and I are like laying there in the dark. I mean, there's there's moments that suck, you know. It's like I'm not ready to be in the dark at nine o'clock. I'm on my Kindle and I'm just like, this is what it is. And I try to remember like my kids are not like glued to TikTok and like hating me, like my 13 year old wants to be with me and our relationship is getting stronger and better. So, you know, keeping that perspective I think is important, but we definitely worked in more Airbnbs that had like a kitchen and a couple of rooms. So my husband could have space or my kids could go close the door. So I think like tiny for our family, it was like little tweaks that just made things better. My husband goes out for a run. Like we try to support that. And like, if we're all hungry and ready for dinner, like we let him do that. We wait for him because we know that's important for him or we have more space for me. I mean, I just love like taking walks and finding a little cafe and just being on my own and having like coffee or tea. And just like, for me, a couple hours rejuvenates me, but I know other families where like a parent might go, away for a night or two, you know, go to, go to a yoga retreat, go on a hike, go backpacking. Like, so I think, um, everybody kind of figures that out and it, it can evolve for each family based on the needs of the people. 
Yeah, and this is, so I have another question. It's kind of personal. So if you don't want to answer, feel free to say none of your okay. business. <laughs> okay. Um, um, so I, I know that for a lot of people, in order to remain married, there has to be, you have to maintain intimacy and connection with your partner. How does that work when you are like glued to your kids and your partner yeah. at all times? I, I knew you were going to go there when you <laughs> said it was personal. I mean, I think that's just where like the, the Airbnbs with two bedrooms come in, you know, like just noticing that you, if you've got too many nights, we're in one hotel room with two queen beds, you, you just have to change it up. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. like that's tending to that relationship is, is vital as well. Do you still do date nights or things like that where it's just the two of you? And if so, what do you do with the kids? Yeah. Well, we have had, um, oh man, you know, when you travel, you probably know this, you make connections with people so quickly, mm -hmm. local people. And, but, but I think like the faster connections are with other travelers because if you're out of your comfort zone, you tend to just like, like just gel with people. So yeah. we, um, we in Guatemala, when we first got here, we um, volunteered at a, an animal sanctuary in the Northern part of the country. We try to volunteer places, which it's not always easy to find for families or find like ethical projects that aren't just trying to like get money from travelers. It's a whole issue. Um, but we found this really amazing animal sanctuary where they're like treating scarlet macaws and monkeys that are like taken from the illegal pet trade, like animals that would literally be sent up to like the States. Yeah. Um, and we met a British person there, this, this guy named Tim, who I thought was like 26 or 27. It turned out he was like 19 and it was his first time, like you, first time away from home, from like a farm in the UK um, he's got three little brothers that he misses, I think. And we ended up like befriending Tim. And then we said, you know, if you come down to Antigua, which is where I am now, which is like way far from where we met, like reach out, you know? So he did and we had dinner with him. We went on a hike and then his hostel bed, he had like, didn't book his hostel bed. And we said, well, we've, we're in this nice Airbnb. You can stay with us. And he ended up staying for like more than two weeks. So uh -huh. I'm, I'm kind of on a tangent, but like, so Tim could watch our kids while my husband and I go out and have date nights. And there are other examples of those things happening. Um, but I think like the, the sweeter part of that is not necessarily that we got date nights, but that like he left my kids notes when, when he left and continued exploring Guatemala, like, and he was like from your big brother, Tim, and like called them his little sisters. And Aww. I mean, I, and I feel like now we've got like, and I'm like friends with his mom on Facebook because I'm literally the same age as his mom. You know, now we've got this family in like near Scotland in the UK that we can go visit. Yeah. And honestly, I will say that I completely understand um, if anyone's listening and you haven't been traveling, um, you might not understand this, but you create relationships that last your life. Um, I, so I'm Israeli and I, but I was living in the United States when I decided to do my traveling. A lot of Israelis travel because they need to decompress after their mandatory army, uh, mm. you know, service. So I actually met people in South America because I traveled South America. I met people in South America, some of them Israelis, some of them still in South America, who I still talk to, but like, I'm going to Israel this month and I'm going to be like celebrating my wedding with people that I met when I was 19 and traveling mm -hmm. and are still in touch. We still talk all the time. We're still a part of each other's lives. We met in other countries. I've met one of them Oh, one of one of them I met when I was in Amsterdam and we traveled a little bit together. We, you know, we went out to a couple meals and stuff. Another, um, I literally went to Carnival in Brazil with a couple years before that. And just you have these, you create these strong bonds. And especially when you're 
relying on each other. You know, like I stayed in hostels yeah. where sometimes you're 10 people to a room. So like you meet people and you you become friends and now you rely on each other and trust each other and like make your own little community uh, that's protected and safe. And so once you have those relationships, they don't have to go away. And then you can continue to have that for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, and it's funny because there's this oxymoron about solo travel, right? Like solo travel, you're just going to be alone. And and like I found when I traveled by myself, I was, I was with people more often than I even wanted to be sometimes because... Yeah. You know, like I wanted these solo experiences, but somebody would be like, oh, we're doing this hike. Why don't you come tomorrow? And, you know, so, yeah, there's nothing solo about solo travel. No, because as humans, right, we crave connection. And as soon as you said that there's like places where you can find other families, like there was a website for me when I was doing it. And I don't know how well those websites are kept up anymore, but when I went, I went completely by myself. And I had just messaged with a girl in Israel that was going to be in Argentina. And she was landing the same day that I was landing. And we were just like, all right, when you land, reach back out, you know, email me and we will meet. And I ended up traveling with her for several, um, for several periods of time over the six mm. months. And she is one of the people that I'm still close with and that I'll be seeing this month. That's awesome. And I think the flip side of that is that often the people at home who aren't travelers can't always relate or are just not that interested. So the people that you meet on the road, you know, you always, you, you almost have a deeper connection because you know that the people close to you at home don't aren't interested or can't relate yeah and they they won't understand the mm -hmm. they don't understand the need to travel and they don't understand um the experiences that you've had because they change mm -hmm. you right yeah. i remember and i know that your kids are having these moments where especially coming from the states where there's an abundance of everything and then you go to some countries and you realize how happy people can be with so little mm -hmm. and how happy you can be with so little. It completely changes your perspective and what's important in life. Definitely. Yeah, that was, I mean, there were so many reasons why I wanted to do this with my kids. Um, and that that's a big one. I mean, I think that we any country that you're in, any culture that you that you grow up in, that you spend 99% of your time in, you absorb the values of that culture. And the values of the American culture right now are, you know, we buy stuff, we buy the pretty thing, the shiny thing, the new thing, and somehow like we strive to make money to, to buy more stuff. And I mean, I think that's shifting. I think the younger generations are more interested in experiences over stuff, but you know, challenging all of that and just showing other ways of life um, is really important. I also think, you know, my kids grew up hearing like America first and this idea of like, we're the best. Everybody wants to come here. People are just flooding over our borders because who doesn't want to come here? This is the best country. And I've always sort of had a reaction to that. I mean, there are so many beautiful ways to live on the earth, so many other choices you can make about your life, your values, how you spend your days. And, you know, the American culture, first of all, is not one thing. You know, there's all different kinds of people living in the States. Um, but, you know, even if you could boil it down to one thing, it's just one, one way of life. It's not better or worse. It's just is. And so I really wanted my kids to just not buy into that, like, America first, we're the best. Everybody wants to come here. They've always wanted to come here. I just just don't buy it. Yeah. Um, so I had, there was another thing that you said that really stuck out to me and is important for me. You said that you like to travel ethically. Mm, yeah. What do you, how do you go about that? And, and what do you mean by that? Mm. 
Well, it's a very complicated topic, um, and I appreciate you asking about it. I think that, you know, travelers have an impact, um, and we give messages all the time wherever we are in the world. So we impact people, we impact the environment, we impact animals, we obviously impact the atmosphere when we're flying all over. Um, and I think noticing all of that's really important and not just being like, oh, I get to do this thing because I have a thousand dollars to spend on this trip. Like we, we give messages um, to other people and we can literally like damage places too with our feet. Um, you know, sites that are being ruined by over-tourism and things like that. So I think, like, knowing that you have an impact, knowing that you have privilege, just being aware of that, and that you have an impact, and just really intentionally choosing what you do and where you go and why. Um, you know, things are changing and people are questioning, but there's also, like, you know, all the animal tourism can be, like, terrible. Yeah. Um, and even this, this um, account, this Instagram account that I followed, like this woman had her child petting a tiger, like a live baby tiger the other day. And a lot of people thankfully were like, that's not okay. And then I commented and said, well, here's why it's not okay. Like animals that are used for animal tourism are drugged or beaten or chained or starved so that you can pet this baby tiger. I would love to hold a baby tiger. That is like dreamy on one level to me, but I would never make that choice. And so, and like the fact that people still don't know that is surprising to me. So, um, like I said, it's multi-layered. Um, I think we honestly do a similar thing with people when we go see like the tribe that still wears the thing so that the tourists can come and take pictures. Like these are all things that I think it's really important for people to question. And with the internet, there's so much chatter out there on all of this. There's not a good excuse for taking the picture with the tiger. Like you can't say you didn't know. It's just the information's out there. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot under there, I think. Yeah. So it's, it's really about being intentional and being conscious of the way that what you do touches the spaces. Exactly. You put it way yeah. more succinctly than I did. Yes. <laughs> well, you explained it, right? If I did, if I had just said that, then people would not really get the message. But you had a you had a very clear message, and I think it is important because people don't see what goes behind. Like you said about the tiger. I mean, we got people are if you hadn't known that now you you watch tiger king right at the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> and you understood what is happening mm -hmm. and how animals get mistreated so that these different places can make money um there's another piece to this uh which i i am privy to because it's something that is important to me um it's in the scuba diving industry, right? A lot of times the places that that you're going are could be owned by locals, but they're not. They're being owned by outsiders. And none of the income, none of the money that, mm. that is taken in by these companies are being shared with the local community at mm -hmm. all. It ends up leaving the country so that's another thing to be really aware of of like where are you placing your money when you go and travel are you yeah. into the local economy or are you putting it into an entity that's going to immediately remove it from the local economy mm -hmm. yeah and i think i mean i know i just said there's a lot of information online and there is but i also have seen that people can be tricky and that sometimes these companies or people trying to monetize something will say what they think the consumer wants to hear. So like for instance, in Thailand, there's always been a huge industry around elephant riding. And I will own that in 2006, when I went on my honeymoon, my husband and I rode elephants in Thailand. I mean, I just have to be transparent about that. I had no idea. I mean, maybe information was out there 17 years ago. Um, about how it's bad for the animal and, you know, 
not an excuse, but I didn't have that information. But now it's out there. Um, but if you if you're in Thailand, and there are um, there are places in Thailand that you can go that are where your visit is all in service to the animals, 100%. Like it's not about you. Like you pay because these are organizations that need money, but you don't get to touch the animal. You don't get to wash the animal in the river. You don't get to ride the animal. Like you might cut up fruit and like put it where the animal is or gather leaves or something, but like it is not about you. But I will say if you start Googling elephant sanctuaries in Thailand, they all sound amazing. Like it's all, they all use the word ethical. They all say they're treating and it's so hard to dig down um, underneath that. You know, thankfully like some of the main, like major reputable news sources have actually like done, like National Geographic did a big piece on this. So you can, you can learn about the, like the real ethical ones, but people are tricky and, it, and it's, it's not always easy to see. Yeah. So I guess it's even, even when it sounds good, still think about what you're doing and if it's really if it feels like it could harm the animal or if it feels like maybe you're going in the wrong direction um then think twice about it you know there are many things that i have done that later on i was like oh you know that was that was not a good idea like that yeah. is probably not the way to go including you know, like I'm obsessed with sharks. You could probably see my, my shark <laughs> background. But I went on a cageless shark dive where they fed sharks. And later, you know, it just takes talking to people about it. Um, and you're like, oh, that's not a good idea to, to have sharks associate people with food. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> totally. You are, it seems you obvious are, when you say it that way. Yeah, like you, that is what you are training them to do. You are training them to expect food from a diver. And that is not the message that you want to send to them. You want to send them that you're just another animal existing in this space and that you are not a, a threat to them, but you are also not a food source. Right. Yeah. So oh, wow. It just takes like a little bit of talking around the subject. And I think if I had spoken to people, I did that really was like about me having this intense fear of sharks and needing to like break that somehow because I was scuba like I was a scuba diver and knew I would have to encounter them at some point. Um, so for me, it was like about breaking through that boundary and I didn't think too far into it and I didn't have those conversations. So I think the fact that we're doing this and having this conversation now can actually bring awareness to people mm -hmm. to, to have those conversations, to ask those questions, to talk to people around the subject. Yeah. And sometimes it just takes a little bit of work and, you know, for people traveling long-term, there's so much research you have to do around finding your accommodation every single night and figuring out how to like feed your kids something they'll eat. And it's like, it can be exhausting, but those, that's the research that's worth doing. Those are the questions worth asking. Yeah. So um, I know that you uh, have like a book that you were part of and yeah. courses and stuff like that. Can you share with us what you do? Sure. So, um, I started a company called Deliberate Detour um, to support other traveling families because, like I said, this is a growing community, and I realized that the questions that I had before I left the States um, and when I was just out on the road in the beginning are the questions that almost every family has, and you ask them, how do you afford the lifestyle, um, how do you educate your kids, how do you keep them socialized? So the first thing I did is I did um, created a Udemy course. Udemy is the website that hosts it, U-D-E-M-Y. Um, and it's called World Schooling, A Comprehensive Guide to Long-Term Travel. And it's just a lot of short videos addressing so many of the questions that you and I talked about today and other questions as well. And it's got a lot of PDFs and like uh, worksheets and things that you can use if you're planning your world schooling journey. Um, and then I got invited to be a part of a book, a multi-author book called World Schoolers, um, Innovative Parents Turning Countries into Classrooms. 
and it's 22 authors who um, we all kind of took a different angle, but it's all about the educational piece of world schooling. So that's on Amazon. Um, and then I um, I'm considering what other pieces I'm adding to this, but like I kind of implied earlier, I'm thinking of creating these physical hubs where parents can meet up especially in Latin America, because um, this is a very popular part of the world to come to as world schoolers. Um, and there just aren't a lot of opportunities for families to get together and for kids to play and meet one another, tra other traveling families. So um, if I do it, I'm going to go big or go home. <laughs> so I am vetting and chatting and asking a lot of good questions to other families of what they would want and how long and you know, what sorts of activities would they want before I dive in? That's awesome. And do you, let's say one of my viewers wants to work with you directly. Do you do yeah. that? And how do they get in touch? Yeah, they, yes. So I'm at Stephanie at DeliberateDetour.com. Um, I'm on Instagram. So my handle everywhere is just at DeliberateDetour, spelled in the conventional American way. Um and yep, so email Stephanie at DeliberateDetour.com or Instagram and Facebook at DeliberateDetour. That's awesome. And will you like help them create a plan to do this for themselves? How does it work? So, yes, I have debated whether or not I'm going to launch into actual coaching and I have not done that yet, but I'd be happy to just like not no fee, just like answer people's questions and definitely be in conversation and offer support as I can. That's awesome. Um, and so my next question is random. Where are you off to next? I am off to, so on March 1st, we leave Guatemala for Mexico and we are joining the Project World School Summit. So I mentioned that there are hubs, but every year for the last 10 years, there's been a summit and there's somewhere between two and 300 people who come together and there's talks and panels and workshops and all of the topics come from the community of world schoolers. So if you've dealt with stress and anxiety on the road or you're a single parent or you're a person of color and you have a specific area of expertise or a passion, you can um, bring together a, a session. So I, we, my family has not been to the summit yet, but it's in Veracruz, Mexico in early March. And I'm so excited to meet other traveling families there. That's awesome. And so do you have to already be a world schooler to join in on the summit? You do not. No. Um, it's great for people just starting out because there'll be hundreds of people at all levels, many very experienced world schoolers. Um, and then, of course, all this value in these sessions. So if somebody wants to come down to Veracruz, I am not involved as a coordinator. So this isn't like a plug. I just think it's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's called the Project World School Summit, and they can find it online. Um, and there's, I know they're still taking um, attendees. Oh, that's awesome. And is it, uh, is it only in person? Or is it like an online component as well? I believe it's only in person. Yeah, Veracruz, Mexico, March 6th through the 10th. It's all, it's not very expensive at all. I mean, you find your own accommodation and everything, but it's very affordable. You just got to get your butt to Mexico. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. That was amazing. Um, Thanks, Galit. I love yeah. talking about travel. So fun. Yeah, and if anyone is even considering world schooling or wants to know more, please reach out to Stephanie. If you feel like you know somebody that needs to hear this, they haven't left the United States, they are scared to travel, they um, just feel like their kids need to learn something a little bit different or they need to learn something a little bit different around the world, about the world, please make sure to share this with them. Like, subscribe, do all the things. Um, and I'm Galit Speaks. You'll see me here for our next episode. Thank you so much.